Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Before I get going this morning, if, if you've got your Bible with you and you want to take, take it out and turn to the book of James and the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll get to those two uh, books eventually, James first and then the book of Ecclesiastes. We have been in this series that we've called The Quest and we've talked about the trilogy of quests, that it hasn't just been one, it's been three and we wrap the whole series up today. I told him in the first service, these things are like babies for me. I hate, it's like sending somebody, a kid off to college, you know. It's like I get really familiar with them and then hate to see them go. Um, the three quests have been the quest for honor, the quest for nobility, and the quest for enlightenment. And we are, we've said we're on a search to end stupidity in our lives, which is uh, for some of us a, a bigger task than for others. So many things in life are unpredictable. The circumstances that, that uh, present themselves at times are very, very uncertain. And for some of us, the future has kind of come at us like a Mack truck. And it, it can leave us feeling a little bit like roadkill at the end of all of it. Our conflicts, our crises, our challenges, the things that come our way that, that give us difficulty. And what, what can happen is that all this uncertainty can create the illusion in us and for us that everything in life is uncertain. It creates the illusion that everything is, is a mystery and every, nothing can be known. Everything is unpredictable. And what we discover is that the person who moves from darkness to light, the person who is able to move from a life of foolishness to a life of wisdom, begins to have a unique clarity about life where things begin to make sense for them that it doesn't always make sense for other people. So today we wrap up this quest for enlightenment, the Q4E we've been calling it, the, the enlightenment stage of this. And what we saw in the beginning was that this quest begins with the very simple virtue of faithfulness. Faithfulness. It begins by being faithful in the small things, by taking care of the small commitments, by uh, addressing the cracks in our armor of our character. And as we live a life of faithfulness, that develops in us this virtue of perseverance. And as we move toward faithfulness in all the small things in life, as we take care of those things that no one else probably would ever notice. We're talking about things that no one else sees. It's the things that you know about you that you know you need to address. Those areas where you say, you know, I I need to be more faithful in that. When we live a life of faithfulness, what happens is that faithfulness begins to mold in us and develop in us character. A character that perseveres. A character that endures. A character that has patience with both ourselves and others. It builds in us a resilience. And it is in the crucible of perseverance that we begin to experience the, the essential characteristic, the thing that we've really been, the the mountain we've been climbing for the last 10 weeks, at the very top of that mountain, what we finally hope to reach is this characteristic, this virtue of wisdom, wisdom. So if you have your book of James open, turn there, we're going to look at the book of James chapter 1. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Then he adds this 
caution. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And what you discover is that being faithful in the small things in life builds in us this perseverance, this ability to say no to all the things that will steal from us the things that God has had for us in our life. And it will rob from us the person that God intended and created us to become. And it is in that crucible that we begin to discover this unique characteristic that we know as wisdom. I know this for certain. You can live for a long, long time. You can live a long life and never grow in wisdom. You can have endless experiences in your life and never learn anything from those experiences. Some of us go through things and we think that we're learning new things when in fact we're not learning new things. We're learning the same thing over and over and over again. Some people make the same mistake over and over again. Some people make the same choice over and over and over again. We are at war against stupidity so that we can stop destroying ourselves, stop destroying our lives, stop destroying our friends and our future. We're told in the Bible about the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus. His name was Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David, and he inherited the empire that David built. Um, We believe that that happened rather early in his life, like in his late teens, he got all of this inheritance, this kingdom kind of fell on his shoulders. And he was overwhelmed by the challenge that was in front of him, overwhelmed by the responsibilities that were now his. And so God made him an offer and he said, Solomon, ask me for anything that you want, and I'll give it to you. And instead of asking for wealth, instead of asking for power, or instead of asking for pleasure, the things that most of us would have been enticed to to ask God for, he said, give me the wisdom that I may lead this people that you have entrusted to me. It's an extraordinary request. It's an incredibly wise choice. And so God said, Solomon, because you have not asked me for wealth or pleasure or power or all these other things, all these treasures that other men war for, all the things that other men pursue, because you have asked me for wisdom, I am not only going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you all these other things that you did not ask for. And ever since then, men have been asking for wisdom. If they think those other things are coming, power, wealth, and pleasure. And we find that Solomon's wisdom was tested right away. We're told about these two women who have had children. And they they both have these little kids, and in the night, one of these little babies dies. And the mother of that child, in her grief and in her loss, decides that she's going to try to pull this switcheroo. Now you have to keep in mind they did not have DNA testing. It's amazing how we can just assume that, well, they could figure that out, right? It's kind of like my kids think we've always had cell phones and computers, right? They didn't have DNA testing back then, so this became a problem because you have two women now claiming this one baby. And Solomon has to decide who it belongs to. He doesn't know. 
Solomon has a brilliant idea. There's only one child, but there are two mothers who claim this one child as their own. So he says, let's cut the baby in half. And we'll give half to each. That solves the problem, doesn't it? And the woman who was not the mother said, that is a brilliant idea. Which kind of tells you something about her heart. It tells you that this is more about more than just a baby. This is about... Um, some pride maybe, this is about some coveting, this is, there's some envy, there's some other things going on. But the real mother, when she hears what Solomon proposes, says to Solomon, don't do that. Don't do that. Let her have the baby. And in her mind, it would be better for someone else to raise her child than for that child to be cut in half, killed, and, and there be no baby at all. And it was in that moment that Solomon knew instantly who the real mother was. All the deception and all the pretense and all the falsehood that we human beings use to cover our hearts and to cover our tracks, he cut to the core and he got to the motive of love. Wisdom has an unusual capacity to get to the heart of the matter. I wonder right now, who is the wisest person you've ever known? Who's the wisest person you've ever known? I'd like you to think of that person right now, okay? Get them in your head. Think of the wisest person you've ever known. Here's the caveat. It cannot be you, okay? It can't be you. It can't be somebody that you've heard on television. It can't be somebody that you've read. It needs to be somebody that you've known and that someone needs to have known you, okay? It's, it's, it's you're going to know this person. Who's the wisest person you've ever known? Do you have it? Now let's play a game. Let's do a survey. The wisest person you've ever known. Is the wisest person you've ever known, is that the most there he is. I thought I killed him earlier this morning. I guess I didn't. Is the wisest person you've ever known also the wealthiest person you've ever known? Raise your hand if the wisest person you've ever known is the wealthiest person you've ever known. Look at that. Look at that. That, that says something right there. Okay, so we know it's possible to be wise and wealthy, but it's probably not very likely that the wisest person you know is going to be the wealthiest person that you know. There's no direct correlation between great wealth and success in the business world and great wisdom. So let's try another area. Okay, so get in your head the wisest person you've ever known is the wisest person you've ever known, also the most educated person you've ever known. Raise your hand. Check that out. The wisest person you've ever known is not the person who has the most initials after their name. It's not the person who's been to school the most. So it's, it's possible for someone to be highly educated and wise, but it's not necessarily likely. So we do know that a person of great wisdom does not necessarily create great wealth, and a person of great wealth is not necessarily a wise person. And we do know that a person of great intellect, of academic excellence, is not necessarily a person 
of great wisdom. And a person of great wisdom may be very humble and very common in their education. So let me ask you this question. Is the wisest person you've ever known the person you would go to to help you heal your relationships and move you to your highest emotional and relational health? Would you not say that's the person you would seek out and that you would go to to find healing and health in your life? Is that not who you seek out? Is that the person for you that has an unusual ability to get to the heart of the matter and create relational health? If that's so, raise your hand. Now check that out. See, we, we, know, we know that the wisest person in our world is probably the person who can help us get to health and get to, I mean, any kind of financial health, relational health, spiritual health. We know that that's probably the person we need to seek out we draw a direct line to that person. Now, either I got you all to think of the same person, or it is intuitive that we make that connection between wisdom and health. Wisdom is so much more than knowledge and so much more than an accumulation of information or data or insight or whatever. Wisdom has the unusual ability to connect the dots, to help you see how you got in a particular situation. And wisdom is that thing that you crave when you're in a situation to say, how do I get out of that? And so many times the counsel and input that we get from the the wise person is not the counsel that we want to hear, right? You ever sought the the wisest person in your world and asked them a question, hoping they would give you a different answer than the answer they gave you? That's why we go to multiple people. See, once in a while, someone will come to me to talk. And they'll say, Brett, you're so wise, which is probably not true, but they say it anyway to make me feel good. Brett, you're so wise. Could I talk to you for a little bit? And I say, sure, let's talk. Let's sit down and talk. And they'll ask me their deal. And, you know, one of the things I'll hear them say is, um, well, I've already talked to multiple people. Well, right there, I already know that what they want from me is not my wisdom. What do they want from me? They want me to tell them what they want to hear. That's what they want. They want me to agree with them. And, and really what they're saying is, I, Brett, I just need you to agree with me because evidence of wisdom for them is compliance and agreement. But the reality is the Bible tells us that this particular characteristic, wisdom, will give us the kind of clarity we need to live in an uncertain world. And we can live in mystery and crisis and in tribulation and hardship. The wise always see the light in the midst of the darkness. See, I bet if you think about the wisest person in your world, that's one of the things you would say is they were always able to see light where I only saw darkness. So this man Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, He's researching and he's studying and he found an occurrence of wisdom that astonished him, which really says something. See, if I told you that earlier in the year when it was warmer, I was playing tennis with a 15-year-old kid and that he was a phenomenal tennis player 
because he beat me at tennis. You would likely say, and probably not in any effort to spare my feelings, Brett, the fact that he can beat you at tennis doesn't mean he's a great tennis player. He may be a great tennis player, but beating you does not make him a great tennis player. However, if Rafael Nadal, who is considered in this day and age one of our better tennis players in the world, were to play tennis with a 15-year-old kid and that 15-year-old were to beat Rafael Nadal and Rafael Nadal said, that kid is a great tennis player, then we would all agree with that, right? Because Rafael Nadal is the expert on that. He would know better than Brett whether or not this kid can play tennis. Let's move this to a different arena. Let's say I've got a little eighth grade girl on stage with me and I tell you, earlier in the morning, I was watching her handle numbers and equations and formulas and this girl is a math savant. You would say, Brett, dear, I know you and I love you. But Brett, everybody is a math savant compared to you. Right? I mean... If you know me, you know what a true statement that is. I mean, the fact that I pronounce some girl a math savant does not make her a math savant. If Einstein watched her and said, her grasp of numbers is beyond anything I've ever seen in my life, for a child this age to have a grip on numbers like she does, she is a math savant, then you would go, oh, she must be brilliant. See, You might not think so if I say she is, but if Einstein said she was, then you would go, pretty smart girl. Now, with all that in mind, when Solomon says, I saw wisdom under the sun that astonished me, you should stop and take notice, which is exactly what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you've got your thumb in that particular portion of Scripture, we're going to go to Ecclesiastes 9. Verse 13, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom, but nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. This particular expression of wisdom threw Solomon off. It impressed him. It astonished him. You see, Solomon knew what wisdom looked like when it had the whole package working in its favor. Solomon knew the effect that, and, and great impact that, that great wealth added to wisdom could bring to bear on a situation because Solomon was the king of Israel at the height of Israel's wealth. So he knew what, what, what could happen when you paired wisdom with great wealth. Solomon knew what wisdom and power could accomplish together. For Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived and the most powerful king that Israel ever knew. 
Solomon knew the great impact that wisdom could have if you held position and authority and you leveraged it to implement your insight into the world. He knew what could happen when you did that. Solomon knew what wisdom could do when you added it to all the other factors of human influence and power. But here was a man stripped bare. No title, no position, no wealth, no power, no resources, no nothing. He says, I once saw wisdom that astonished me. There was a small city that only had a few people in it. A king came and laid siege to the city and built up a siege work around it, which means that no one goes in and no one comes out. And in that city, there was a man, poor but wise, and with his wisdom, he set the city free. Here was a man who had nothing working in his favor. Here is a man whose entire world has been turned upside down. It doesn't tell us why the city was so valuable to this great king. It doesn't tell us why the city has only a few people in it. It doesn't tell us why it had such significance to this band of marauders that would come lay siege. But for some reason, this army has come and conquered this small town, and you can't get into it, and you can't get out of it. And so what we know is that all the young men in the city who had been trained up to fight, they've all been killed. All the great warriors in this small city that had been trained to defend the city are gone, which brings with it its own set of hopelessness. All those men had prepared their whole life to have the skills to be great warriors, and now they're gone. Their wives and their children are now widows and orphans. Their blood fills the streets. Despair fills the city, and there's no one left to bring them hope or to bring them freedom. But there was a poor man in a small town with a few people in it who was about to face the greatest challenge and the greatest opportunity of his life. And the first thing he had to face was his own overwhelming sense of insignificance. Can you imagine this description being your description? Can you imagine this being your resume? I'm a poor man from a small town. There aren't a lot of people in it. I don't come from New York or London or Los Angeles or Paris. I'm just from a small town with a few people. There's very little competition in that city, and I'm still poor. See, he wasn't a small fish in a big ocean. He wasn't a big fish in a small pond. He is a guppy in a puddle. That's what this guy is, okay? There's nothing special about him. And I'm telling you that when you understand what God has created you to do, when you finally see the life that God created you to live, when you finally live and embrace the calling that God has on your life. See, calling is not just a preacher thing. Preachers aren't the only ones who get callings. You've been called. There's a call on you. God has intention for your life. And when you step into that, when you embrace that, you are going to have an overwhelming sense of insignificance. See, when I talk about you being called, one of the things that goes through your mind is, well, I can't be called. I'm, just, I'm nobody. I don't have any skills. 
I can't, I can't do anything. Well, everybody that gets called by God feels that way. That's just a part of it. You, you begin to wonder, God, what in the world were you thinking when you tapped me on the shoulder? It's consistent in the Bible. When God called young Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, God, I'm too young. When God calls Moses, Moses stammers and stutters through, God, I, 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 I don't speak that well. You don't want to use me. I, I, can't, I can't do it. When he called Isaiah, Isaiah had this overwhelming sense of unholiness, of not being fit, of not being good enough. Every time God encounters a human being and that human being gets a glimpse of their God-given intention, that person is overwhelmed with their smallness. And I know this, if you think you're bigger than your vision, then your vision is too small. If you think you're talented enough, gifted enough, bright enough, intelligent enough to accomplish everything that is on your heart, then what is on your heart is just too small for you in your life. Because the moment you enter into a relationship with God, he expands your soul, he expands your vision, he expands your imagination. And what you long to accomplish becomes so huge and you become so small and you become like a poor man from a small town with only a few people in it. And you have to hear this voice whispering into your brain. You know that sense of insignificance? You need to trade it in for understanding the power of God with one person. The power of God on one person willing to do what he's called to do is a powerful thing. If you're anything like me, you have struggled with your own sense of, of insignificance. If you're anything like me, you can, you can play the game, you can look good, you can have the talk, but deep down in those moments when you're honest with yourself, you know. You know that there are people more talented. You know that there are people that are more intelligent. There are people that are better looking. There are people that have better opportunities. There are people that are, are better put together. There are people whose lives are less marred than yours. You know that there are people out there with a sharper edge and you look in the mirror and the, the prayer you're praying is, God, what do you see in me? Why in the world would you call me? And I want you to know that no matter how insignificant you have ever felt or how insignificant others have made you feel or said to you out loud, that when you enter into a relationship with the creator of the universe, you begin to tap into the power of God with one person. Because one person with God is a majority as far as God is concerned. And if Jesus reminds us of anything, it is that one person fully devoted to God can change the world. I wonder, what is it that God is calling you to this morning? What is it that God has said specifically to you? And you, here's the thing, you know he's saying it to you, that he's calling you to, and you don't want to hear it because you think, I'm not significant enough. I don't have the talents. I don't have the skills. I don't have the money. I don't have, I don't have it. 
if you would just stop denying that you are the one that God is waiting for and step up and rise up and be that poor man, I wonder what God could do through you. But see, here's what happens. The moment you decide, okay, God, I'm going to step up. I'm going to step into the moment you've got for me. I'm going to live the life that you've intended for me to live. It's my moment. I'm stepping into my moment. The moment you do that, you step outside into the real world and you realize, oh, my goodness, there's a reason I feel insignificant because the problems are very, very significant. The things going on in the world are huge. God, how in the world am I ever going to overcome that? That's huge. God, there are giants in the land. There are dragons, and they breathe fire. How am I going to overcome that? And you say, no wonder I thought I was insignificant because I'm not only insignificant, the problems are massive. See, he's not just a poor man in a small town with a few people in it. He has to go to war against a great king. His obstacle is significant. His obstacle is is not imaginary. And, And this king has decided to conquer this town and claim it for his own and keep it. And I'm telling you that the moment you begin to live your life with the intention and purpose that God intended you to live, you are going to be going to war against giants and you are going to have to slay dragons and you're going to wonder to yourself, how in the world, God, why would you pick me? Why would you call me? Why would you think that I'm able to do this thing that you've put on me? Listen, some of you are in the room and you've done things that God's called you to do and you look back over your shoulder and you're like, what was I thinking? But you would also say, I've seen the hand of God on my life and I've seen what happens when I say yes to the vision that God gives me. I don't know how many times I've heard someone's story They'll be telling me their story and how everything was going great and how cool everything was and it was, everything was awesome. And I'll hear those two destructive words. You know what they are? And then. Brad, it was great. Things were going awesome. The business was going wonderful. And then. Brad, my life was awesome. And then my mother died. Things were great, and then I lost everything. I was doing so well, and then I got sick. I I was doing great with my money, and then I lost my job. And then this happened. And I'm telling you that when you enter into a relationship with God, and then doesn't stop. There will always be an and then. overwhelming circumstances. And in those moments, you realize that the only solution to overwhelming circumstances is an overriding commitment to God. The only circumstances that will bring you down and keep you down are the ones that are more powerful than your commitment to live the life that God has created you to live. He was just a poor man that God used to set a city free. What in the world could God do with you? 
Solomon goes on. He was poor. Solomon's wondering, how can a poor man accomplish this much? Is wisdom really that powerful? Can wisdom really bring that much to bear on a situation? This guy didn't have anything. See, the moment I get over my insignificance, and trust me, I, I struggle with that kind of stuff all the time. You know, God's saying, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to go, I want you to do this. I'm like, I can't, God, I can't do that. Yeah, you're going to do that. No, God, you're not listening to me. No, Brett, you're not listening to me. And then the moment I get to the place where I would say, okay, God, I believe that you and me, that if I just trust you, we can do some pretty great things. You you can do something through my life that will change history. I'm going to own that. And the moment I do that, I say, okay, God, I'm not going to be paralyzed by my overwhelming sense of insignificance, and I'm not going to be paralyzed by my circumstances. I'm not. God, I'm going to rise above it, and I'm going to be fueled by courage. That's when I say, but God... I'm going to need some stuff to make it happen, right? That's when I start to lock in on my lack of of resources. You know how many times before all this happened that we were dreaming in rooms and talking about things and praying over stuff, and the, the question that's run through my mind is, where in the world is the money going to come from for that? God, we don't have the money for that. You know, somebody would come in with this great idea, and I'm like, that is awesome. That's going to cost money. And you know what's going on in my head a lot of the times? It's a stupid thought. If only Jesus had money, he could change the world. But poor Jesus, he's underfunded. He doesn't have enough money. He's broke. So he created this huge movement with dreamers and visionaries and heroes Men and women who were noble and courageous. But he's just so underfunded. And that's when the thought hits you. Sometimes we are not poor men. We are simply beggars who have bought into a poverty mentality because we think that God needs the world's resources to accomplish his will in the world. And he does it. Here's what I know. Nothing of significance in my life started with money. Nothing of significance in my life started with money. It starts with passion. God doesn't give us all the resources so that we can trust him. He gives his resources to people who trust him. Provision never comes before vision. You have to have vision of the future. You have to have a deep burden and a passion that says, I'll do it in poverty if I have to. I'll do it alone. I'll do it bleeding. I'll do it sweating. I'll do it crawling. I have to do this. God looks for those individuals who will go with nothing because those are the people to whom he can trust everything. I'm going to say something here and it's going to be brilliant. So that tells you I didn't write this, okay? Erwin McManus said this, and it's brilliant, so I want you to know that. Erwin McManus said, if you have enough resources for your vision, then you don't have enough vision for your life. Wow. If you have enough resources for your vision, then you don't have enough vision for your life. 
when you enter into a relationship with God, God brings you into a life that is so big that it guarantees you will be under-resourced. It guarantees it. All the resources we need to do what God calls us to do is there. I heard Craig Rochelle say one time to a bunch of leaders, you have everything necessary to win the people to Jesus that God expects you to win today. Because see, what preachers like to do is preachers like to make excuses for themselves as to why things aren't going good. Well, God, we could win more people if you would just give us some money. God says, no, I've resourced you. You need to do with what I've given you what I've called you to do. And, and, and that's not just for preachers, that's for everybody. We sit around and we wait for God to resource us, and as long as God never resources us, we never have to step into that thing that God's calling us to do. But see, the way it works is you step into it in faith saying, God, I don't know how you're going to make this happen. I'm going to take the first step knowing full well you haven't funded it yet. You haven't resourced it. I don't know how it's all going to happen, but I'll take the first step. God says, now we're getting somewhere. But see, what happens is we are usually just blind to the resourcing of God, or we're hiding it, or we're holding on to it, and not releasing what we have to God. God is calling you to some things. We've talked about nine things in this series. It started off, we were talking about humility and integrity, and courage. And that was the quest for honor. We moved into the quest for nobility when I I talked about gratitude and how that, that wholeness grows out of gratitude and we eventually get to a place where we are generous, where we live our most generative lives. And in the, in the quest for enlightenment, we talked about how faithfulness gives birth to perseverance and how now today perseverance Wisdom grows out of perseverance. And so here, at the end of this series, here's the thing that we need to kind of come back to that we need to understand. You need to understand that God has an intention for your life, and he's got a calling on you, and you probably have some semblance of an idea what it is. And there's probably some part of you that has all these reasons and excuses that you're ticking off to God. And do you know why you're doing that? Because it takes courage to step into being that person. It takes courage to say, I think I heard God tell me that he wants me to do this, whatever this is for you. But you don't say it out loud because if you say it out loud, people are going to think you're crazy. And it's just a whole lot easier and a whole lot safer to say, I don't have the money and I don't have the time and I don't have the resources and I'm just underfunded. There's two things I want to wrap this up with. We started this whole quest talking about our need for humility. I I believe that, that the pursuit of humility is the grandest pursuit you can have on the planet. I think that as you pursue humility, you are truly in pursuit of Jesus. You look at the Bible, you look at the New Testament, and you look at the things that Jesus said and did, and you look at the places where Jesus got angry and upset and the people he got mad at, he never, ever got angry at humble people. Behavior, this is a dangerous thing for a preacher to say, behavior is not what Jesus got mad at. You know what Jesus got mad at? Attitude. Arrogance. 
This idea that I've arrived and I don't need anything. Humility is the exact opposite of that. So it starts with our pursuit of humility, and that truly is a pursuit of Jesus. And I I really believe as we do that, as we pursue that, we will come into the wisdom necessary to make the decisions that we need to make so that we do connect the dots and we do create a life that has a better future and a better certainty than we ever dreamed or imagined. It's possible. Let's, um, I don't really know how to end this thing, so I'm just going to pray, all right? We'll just pray and y'all, we'll sing and y'all can leave. Let's pray together. God, humility, it's so elusive. And what in the world makes us think that we should be anything other than humble? I don't know, because there's, Father, there's nothing good in me but you. Any good thing that anyone would see in me comes from you. And Father, the top of this mountain, this, this quest that we've been on, this, this trek, this journey to get to the pinnacle, the, the peak, it's, it's all about wisdom. It's about being the person that others can lean into. It's about being the person who speaks your truth and, and has wisdom and, and can guide and help and It's about being your hands and feet on the earth. And we want that so bad. But it starts with the humility to be able to say, God, we are nothing before you. We're just sinners. Messed up. And you recognized it. You recognized our desperate need for a Savior, and that's exactly what you provided in Jesus. And at this particular time of the year, we celebrate the little baby. God, that baby would grow up and he would live the most humble life, but powerful and strong and courageous. And he was whole and he would persevere and he would, he would hit all those virtues that we've talked about. And Father, he was wise. Father, this morning we just very humbly bow before you and tell you that we want to do the things you're calling us to. And Lord, there's probably people in this room that are right on the cusp of it. I pray that you give them the courage it takes to take the next step, to be the man or woman that you've called to be your person in that place. And then watch what you will do. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.